Good afternoon and welcome to the 138th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I'm going to talk about COVID-19 in Bangladesh and food insecurity issues with Hannah Rushek and Maheen Khan. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 30th, 2020, there are 1,010,288 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, there are 7,216,828 cases of COVID-19 reported. That's up from 7,156,562 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 206,615 deaths reported in the U.S., up from 205,268 reported yesterday. The global death toll now is over a million. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. Kamal Ahmed, who helped Bangladeshi Americans, dies at 69 by Daniel E. Slotnick. This appeared in the New York Times, May 20th. Kamal Ahmed spent decades catering to dignitaries, diplomats, and presidents as a banquet worker at the Millennium Hilton Hotel at One United Nations Plaza in Manhattan. Outside of work, Mr. Ahmed, who immigrated to the United States in 1977 from Bangladesh, was a rock for his relocated compatriots. He was twice elected the leader of the Bangladesh Society of New York, which has 28,000 registered members. In that role, he helped newcomers from his homeland find jobs and apartments and created a sense of belonging in a vast and often indifferent metropolis. More recently, Mr. Ahmed also supported them at the end of their lives. He helped dozens of society members who died from the novel coronavirus find a grave in burial plots the society had bought on Long Island, New York, and in New Jersey for members who could not afford them. Mr. Ahmed died on April 5th at a hospital near his home in Elmhurst, Queens. He was 69. His daughter, Ramana Ahmed, said the cause was complications of COVID-19. Kamal Uddin Ahmed was born January 1st, 1951 in Silhet district in Eastern Bangladesh to Shamsun, a homemaker, and Zia Ahmed, an elementary and high school teacher. He grew up in Bian, Bianabazar, a town in Silhet, and studied agriculture before moving to the United States, where his father had settled for better opportunities. He got a job at the Hilton, starting as a busboy and eventually becoming a banquet worker and became a citizen in 1982. He also worked as an office manager for personal injury lawyer H. Bruce Fisher in Queens and became involved with Bangladeshi American groups. He led one for people from Bianabazar and one for people from Bangladesh's Jalalabad region before he became the president of the Bangladesh Society. Azimur Rahman, a member of the society and a banquet server at the Algonquin Hotel who had known Mr. Ahmed since they lived in Bangladesh, credited Mr. Ahmed with starting Bangladeshi language and culture classes at the society so that children who grew up in the United States might have a greater understanding of their heritage. Mr. Ahmed married Afsari Begum in 1980, In addition to his wife and daughter, he is survived by a son, Rofi, five brothers and five sisters and a grandson. Mr. Ahmed was buried in Mount Sinai, New York, in a plot near those the society provided for its members, but his grave was paid for by his family, said Rahul Siddiqui, the society's general secretary. He said that when I die, I will not use anything from the society for needy people, Mr. Siddiqui said.
Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. Really pleased to introduce my guests. Mahim Khan is a writer and co-editor for the Voices from the Frontline Initiative by the International Center for Climate Change and Development, ICCAD, and also for CDKN. She is a communications specialist and has 10 years of professional experience across multiple sectors, including education, data and technology, and sustainable textiles. Mahin was the founder and creative director of Monochrome, a sustainable fashion startup in Bangladesh. At Monochrome, she successfully implemented the circular design economy as its business model. Mahin is currently reading her master's in science and sustainability science policy and society at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. She was born in Bangladesh and had previously attained a Bachelor of Commerce in Marketing and Demography from Macquarie University in Australia. Hannah A. Rushik is a feminist urban geographer at Durham University's Institute of Hazard Risk and Resilience and the Department of Geography in the UK. She is interested in how the world's invisible majority live in academically overlooked smaller cities. Her forthcoming edited book, Overlooked Cities, Power, Politics, and Knowledge Beyond the Urban South will be out with the Rutledge Studies in Urbanism and the City series later this year. Before academia, Dr. Rushik worked for two United Nations agencies, the International Labor Office and the United Nations Development Program. She has published in peer-reviewed journals of area, in the following journals, Area, Disasters in Environment and Urbanization, Urban Geography, and the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction. Her 2019 co-edited digital magazine, Laboring Urban Infrastructure, is a collaborative creative experiment in thinking about feminism, the urban infrastructure, and invisibility. You can check out her website, hannahrushik.weebly.com, and we'll put the link up for that throughout our conversation today. It gives an overview of her research on livability, gender, social infrastructure, and community resilience. Hannah and Mahin, thank you so much for your time, and welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you for having us. So let's start the way we usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Mahin, can I start with you, please? Yes, certainly. Uh, so I am currently living in Maastricht in the Netherlands, and I've just arrived here about a month ago, a little more than a month ago. Uh, the situation was quite all right when I reached. Uh, uh, the cases have had decreased, and um, even the the measures, the safety protocols, were much more relaxed when I had come in. However, uh, very recently, um, the cases are on a rise again in uh, Belgium, France, and also in Netherlands. And we have a fresh new set of lockdown measures in place, actually starting uh, that started from yesterday. So that is the current situation in Netherlands right now. And it, did you have to go through some sort of quarantine procedure when you arrived? Yes. Uh, so I flew from Bangladesh um, in the middle of August and uh, I had to be in quarantine for two weeks when I arrived here. I did take a test right before I left for the Netherlands. So I took a COVID test uh, in Bangladesh before I could fly. So there were some measures in Bangladesh as well from the government in order for you to take a flight overseas. Okay. And what about the university? Are they doing classes in, in person, even though the numbers are ticking up, or is it going to be remote? No, unfortunately, our cohort for the course that I am enrolled in is one of the biggest that they've ever had. And they're not being able to accommodate uh, the students in a classroom environment, uh, given the large number of students. Hence, we are currently um, doing online classes. Okay, so this is a master's in sustainability, science, policy, and, and society. And you said it's the biggest class they've ever had? For this course, yes. It's uh, quite a new course as well, and this is the biggest cohort, yes. Okay, well, good luck with that. I'm sure Thank we'll hear you. more about that as we go along. Hannah, same question to you. Where are you calling from, and what's COVID-19 looking like there? Well, I'm calling from the UK. Uh, I live in the northeastern part. And uh, I think the UK is sort of competing with the US in terms of its ability or inability to address uh, the pandemic. Um, we're under um, what they're calling a local lockdown, which is impacting 2 million people uh, in the Northeast. And uh, at the moment, we are unable to socialize with people outside of our households, unless we're in a business meeting. 
So it's really difficult because people, um, it's the rules and regulations aren't very clear um, and the government is constantly doing U-turns um, and British people like to follow the lead of the government. So, so it's really difficult when the government is unclear on how it wants um, British people to act. Um, and at the moment, um, one in 10 British people have accessed food banks between April and July of this year. Um, so people are skipping meals and going hungry. And this is according to the government's food safety watchdog, which is the Food Standard Agency. Um, and this has really impacted um, young British people between the ages of 16 and 24, and those with young children at home and not the elderly, which is for me quite interesting. And also about 16% of adults in the UK are food insecure, which is about 7.8 million people. Um, and a good portion of those have fallen into food security because of the, look of the, um, because of the virus. So I think the, the UK, there's increasing levels of precarity and the years of austerity have really hurt um, uh, a lot of people in the UK and COVID is just is, is just really tremendously hurting people. I have to say it's, it's it, to me was a has been an unexpected and unfortunate um, basis of transatlantic solidarity to see both the UK and the United States following at least early on in the pandemic the path of denial. <laughs> if we treat it like a war we can fight it like a war right? I mean right. It, it just doesn't work like that. Um, no, not at all. And and as you described, I want to ask you a little bit more about this so-called local lockdown that affects two million, two million people. Um, ha, how does that register in terms of fatigue? Because in the United States, in in places even where there's a very strong effort to comply, comply by state level mandates to wear masks or social distance, people are chafing against those restrictions because it's been a while now and it's hard. Um, we have not been ordered into this much more um, uh, restrictive mode that you're describing. I can imagine that that's really wearing on people. Um, British people want to follow the law. Um, you know, they they want to do the right thing. Um, so there were issues. There, there, some of the issues have started because some government officials have not followed the laws that they've asked citizens to follow. And so that was sort of galling for, for, um, for, the, for the, the majority of British people um, because they were following the law, not meeting their family over Easter. And yet there are these, these instances of senior government officials doing that. Um, and the government officials sort of being surprised that the people didn't break the law so, so it's, 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 it's really problematic um, because people want to do the right thing. All over the world, they want to do the right thing. They just need governments to lead them. Um, and I think that's where the problems come in um, with all the conspiracy theories and whatnot, is if, if there's just not a clear articulated message for people to follow. So we've uh, touched a bit on the Netherlands and on the UK and the United States, but we're here today really to talk about Bangladesh. And I really appreciate this discussion because um, we have tried to bring as much of a global perspective as we can to COVID calls, but it's been very North American centric and I'm gonna work hard on this in the next couple of months to really broaden that. And so thank you so much for your time on this. And let's just, can you just give us some context to work with? Maheen, I'll start with you and then Hannah uh, about how COVID-19 has played out in Bangladesh. What's been the evolution of the virus, the government response? Yes, certainly. So in Bangladesh, if we start from the very beginning of uh, the, the onset of the of the pandemic, uh, the first recorded case was uh, discovered in March. That was the official recorded case. And the government uh, declared a general holiday. That was the official term being used to refer to the lockdown uh, in the, uh, towards the end of March. And so it was uh, just like um, 
the, the lockdown measures were similar to um, other uh, other countries, but the situation obviously played out very differently uh, if you compare it uh, to the to the global north. But it was more similar to countries in the global south, uh, with uh, multiple levels of impact uh, being um, faced uh, uh, by the population. So just a bit of uh, uh, numbers here. So. Uh, the country faced a peak between June and July, a peak of infections uh, and cases. And currently, um, the cases are at uh, 363,000, uh, the total number of cases, and the total number of deaths stand at uh, 5,251. And uh, the number of recoveries uh, currently stands at 275,000, again, approximately a little uh, uh, more or less. Um, also, a uh, uh, I got some stats very recently. Uh, it's uh, recorded by Angelo Agency. As of 23rd September, the recovery rate was actually 73.1%. Uh, there are more uh, in asymptomatic symptoms um, uh, in, in, in the populations that has been uh, discovered. And also, uh, it must be noted some of the things like there has been some criticisms in terms of that there wasn't sufficient test testing taking place from the very beginning. There has been some scandals as well where um, testings, uh, tests were published. There were fake tests being published and given to uh, uh, to patients. So, for example, migrant workers from Bangladesh, when they were going back to Italy where uh, to their places of work in July, uh, when they landed at the airport, their certificates, you know, the COVID certificates that the tests that they had given in Bangladesh before uh, boarding the flight, they were negative. But when they arrived, uh, a, a lot of the workers uh, tested positive for COVID. And this led to Italy uh, posing a ban on travel from Bangladesh. And this affected a lot of people economically. As you can see, as you, I'm sure you already know that the migrant workers um, uh, actually contribute uh, ma majorly to the, the to the economy of Bangladesh. Um, also, another point is that uh, the clusters of infections have been more or less in urban areas as opposed to rural areas. And some of the factors could be because of lack of testing, uh, like a tracking system, sorry, not testing, tracking system, and also multiple community initiatives being undertaken, which we will get into more in details uh, later on uh, on this podcast. But that was some of the um, some of the points of evolution in the country in the pandemic. The government response has been, um, I mean, when it started, the testing was not as efficient. It's still one of the con uh, countries in the world with the lowest number of tests being undertaken. Uh, however, after the debacle uh, with in Italy, with Italy, uh, the testing centers have also they have improved. There are more. T uh, they're trying. They're their best to uh, uh, roll out as many tests as possible. And um, when I was flying, for example, uh, I went to, um, I gave you, you had to take the test in uh, army controlled environment. So the testing center was managed by the, uh, by the Bangladesh military. And uh, it was very well organized, very well structured. So I think that was one of the initiatives that came out uh, after mm -hmm. the debacle that happened with Italy. Tell me a little bit about the Bangladeshi Health Service. Is it very centralized, decentralized? Or you pointed to some of the problems with making testing and tracking available. And certainly Bangladesh is not alone in countries that have faced that. But maybe you could describe a little bit about how the structure works. Certainly. Um, so the health system in Bangladesh is rather pluralistic. Um, this, there are systems coming from the government, the private sector, and also the non-governmental organizations. The non-governmental organizations are either donor funded or they're locally run. Um, historically, the focus has been on uh, on rural sector, and this is because uh, post-liberation, uh, the country was more agricultural and also a majority of the population lived in rural areas. So a lot of attention has been on the rural healthcare system and um, the structure, there, it, it's well structured. Uh, the government had a very well uh, planned out health system for the rural sector. It reached uh, from the 
district level to the sub-district level to the union level. Also, there were availability of door-to-door -door facilities. For example, door-to-door -door vaccination was available for remote and uh, grassroots communities. So that was very well planned and structured. However, there was a lack of attention on urban health care. And uh, obviously, um, uh, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, the major urbanization was taking place in the country from rural to urban areas, people were migrating for better economic opportunities. And this led to a lot of people living in slums. So there was an increase in slum dwellers in, a, in cities, for example, like in Dhaka. And obviously this resulted in health issues, which can be sourced from lack of sanitation and overcrowding. So this led to some initiatives in the late 90s. For example, the Asian Development Bank financed urban primary healthcare project and USAID Smiling Sun. Also, the European Union um, experimented with some facilities that, that would be available to the urban poor. Um, Bangladesh actually achieved uh, Millennium Development Goal 4 by 2015 and had reduced child and maternal mortality rates. It was also able to reduce infectious diseases like tuberculosis, malaria, and diarrhea. And um, it was very successful in, in uh, achieving the Millennium Development Goals, as you must already know. However, um, the last few de decades, there's a substantial change in the socioeconomic indicators. The life expectancy currently stands at 72 years. Uh, the country has also graduated to a low uh, middle income category. And because of urbanization, uh, there has been, uh, it has been um, discovered that uh, non-communicable diseases are actually a major cause of death right now. And that is quite challenging for the country at the moment because there is lack of development for that sector. The country has achieved great strides in uh, communicable diseases and also child and women's health because there was a huge focus on uh, on uh, child mortality, infant mortality and maternal mortality. And, and it's, it's known for uh, those achievements. So currently that is the situation of the public health sector. And just to one more follow-up there in terms of the politics of health in Bangladesh, uh, do you have a health minister who's had to answer for some of the, you said that, you know, the high case and, and fatality rate and the disappointment there, many people obviously in Bangladesh, who answers for that? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, that is there. There is uh, uh, the health minister as well, but it has been, um, it, it, it has been interesting to see the, the the events as they unfolded because I think uh, with COVID-19 being so uncertain, uh, a crisis and the resulting, um, you know, the resulting factors, you know, so whether it's socially or economically, it was quite difficult for people to grasp the concept of a lockdown. And I think it was equally difficult for, uh, uh, you know, governments, whether it's in Bangladesh or any other country to deal with the situation because it is so novel in its way. But yes, I mean, the government has been um, there. It, it has been trying to answer the uncertainties, but, you know, doing their best. Hannah, let me bring you in. Mahin, thank you so much for that sort of context that you've laid in for us. And, and Hannah, would you like to, to respond to any of that? Um, I think Mahin did an excellent job about of providing an overview. Um, I think what's, what's really interesting uh, for me as an outsider or as a foreigner is to, is to, is to see how COVID-19 um, is almost an affluent virus. Um, it, it's in places such as Bangladesh or Nepal, for example, where I've worked um, for quite a long time, um, the virus was brought in by people who have traveled abroad. So it's, it, it's, it's the upwardly mobile um, or it's, it's international migrants um, for, for Bangladesh and Nepal and, um, and India, it's, um, it's young, young people, young bodies um, who are um, providing the remittances for the countries. So, so it didn't hit the rural areas right away. It really was an urban, it was an affluent and urban um, phenomenon. Um, so that's, so that literally, so that adds a really interesting dimensions to the pandemic when you think about it in spaces in the global south, which is very different than the US or the UK. That's all I wanted to say. 
Yeah, and I think there's, you know, there's a part of that that um, is important to underline, which uh, you both touched on, are migrant workers who may be any number of places, whose families and extended families may be re re very much relying on remittances, finding themselves either out of work and unable to get home, or unable to work when they were, I mean, there's all manner of permutations of problems there for people who get stranded. And we've talked in COVID calls, other cases about workers who get caught in the US-Mexico maelstrom, and that's a whole set of problems in, in the US. But that, I mean, that dimension of it is is one, are, are people looking at, at that as some, that's some, the kind of thing that you can get a handle on statistically? Um, I don't have those statistics, but I'm sure they're available. Um, but there's a big issue related to stigma. Um, so when the migrants come back, uh, I was had a, I had a phone call this morning with my colleagues in Nepal, and so they talk about about the migrants being embarrassed or being stigmatized that they have this illness and that they are the contagion, you know, to their communities. So it's it's absolutely devastating. And then also, how do you occupy young men, you know, in rural areas, you know? Young young people need jobs, um, so um, and young people, you know, uh, yeah. So so there's a lot of issues coming up, um, and uh, definitely governments are aware of them. It's their social, their economic, health implications. It's it's tremendous. So it'll be really interesting to see how this evolves in the next uh, five years. What percentage will go back? Which which ones won't? Um, and all of that. Mahin, can I bring you in on this issue of this the stigma of of returning? workers who find themselves in a position where they're not only having their responsibility to family and extended family disrupted, but also they're introducing the virus. Yes, um, there's actually another interesting dimension to this. I was reading about this, that so there's the stigma of returning migrants, right? So when migrants are coming back to, when they were going back to Bangladesh and their villages, uh, we, we actually published stories on that uh, on this under the uh, Voices from the Frontline Initiative. But there's another dimension which is quite interesting is migrant workers who are actually living in Italy, after the whole incident that happened in July, those who were already living there, not returned back and went back. No, those who were already living there were actually um, being stigmatized because on a community level, people are saying, oh, these, these people are bringing the virus in Italy. So they were shadowed uh, under that umbrella. So the stigma is actually playing out in two ways. It's not only at home when the migrant workers are returning, but it's also where they're working and they, had, they hadn't returned. These workers didn't do any of that, but still facing another type of stigma there. It also speaks to yet another reason that migrant workers will be reluctant to get tested if they can avoid or if they can stay out of the health system, maybe not right. even seek care if they're sick so that they're, I mean, as you said, if the stigma is working both ways, that's a lot of incentive just to avoid, um, unless you're in dire uh, medical necessity to avoid that kind of, that kind of tracking. I want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about Bangladesh today and the experience of the pandemic with Mahin Khan and Hannah Rushek. And I want to, Hannah, I, I, can I turn to you and, and get a little bit of your sort of research background um, on this? Because, you know, as we were just talking about, there's the disaster, but there, you know, our notions of disasters are often, often impoverished because we think of, well, people die in the fire, or they die in the earthquake, or they die of COVID it's a much wider circle of distress. And I know that's something that you pay attention to. Can you talk yeah. about the kinds of issues that you care about? Um, sure. Um, I'm an I'm a urban geographer um, and I work at an Institute of Hazard Risk and Resilience. So, so what I'm interested in is this intersection of how people live their lives every day. And then what happens when events occur, you know, so an event can be an earthquake an event can be change in government. Um, an event can be the pandemic lockdown. 
you know, and so what happens to the way people live their lives? Who do they rely on? And how do they get by? And how do they then incorporate these, these um, ruptures and then continue on? Um, so, so I've been working uh, with ECAD, the International Center for Climate Change and Development, for a little while now. And we started last year working on a project about livability. So what makes cities livable to the residents? Because if we go to some cities, we may not particularly think they're interesting or even um, livable, but for, for the people who live there, they are. And so, so what we're trying to understand is um, instead of rankings, global rankings of livability, we should be listening to residents and what they're interested in. So we did 200 surveys, um, we did street theater, photography, filming, um, focus groups. Um, so we mixed social sciences and humanities. And we got a wealth of information on two cities that are on the coast. So they're impacted by um, salinity, climate change, um, they have water issues. And then we were able to access um, a colleague of mine, Faisal Rahman and I were able to access some funding to do a rapid response project in these cities to understand what has been the impact of the COVID lockdown on food security. And I'm using the phrase lockdown because that's the really interesting, that's the really important element. When we talk about cities in the global South, it's not so much the virus, it's, it's the lockdown, the inability of people to earn money. Mm. And when the everyday is already precarious, where um, we know that in the autumn, um, people were eating three meals a day, primarily rice-based, but with vegetables and some meat. But we do know that 84% of the people that we engaged with in these cities of 102,000 people, 84% of them had either no savings or savings up to two months. Okay, now this is also similar, similar to the US and the UK sure. in terms of the savings level, but the level of precarity is much higher in, in, in a country such as Bangladesh. This would be the same for Nepal. So they don't have much of a cushion. So when the lockdown hit, and the lockdown was really long, you know, so people followed the law. They didn't go outside. They, were, they would have also been penalized and, um, and they would have had problems with, um, with the police, but it was the lockdown that made people suffer. And so that really um, dramatically um, hurts their livelihood strategies. And so I think that's what we're trying to understand now is what is that relationship between food security livelihood strategies, who's been most negatively impacted, and what kind of support did they receive? I want to highlight an article that you co-authored that was published in July and the conversation. Uh, the conversation has been publishing really good articles um, throughout the pandemic. And I just want to quote, you You write here, so you're talking about the, one of these um, cities you're talking about is Mangla, which is on the coast. And you say, many residents in Mangala experienced near or complete loss of income during the lockdown, which restricted almost all economic activities. People were only allowed to leave their homes to buy food during a four-hour period each day. Day laborers, street vendors, small businesses all saw their livelihoods decimated. One rickshaw driver who we spoke to, you, you write, in late May told us, this lockdown is making us suffer for several months. I have never seen anything like this before. If there was a disaster, we survived with our savings, but this time savings are not helping much. Tell us about that man. Um, he's someone that we've worked with for quite a long time. And um, so he's also a community um, leader. And um, this part of Bangladesh is, um, is regularly hit by cyclones. Um, there's two cyclone seasons a year and Mangla and Noapada were both impacted by uh, Cyclone Amphan, which occurred also <laughs> during the lockdown. Right. So, um, so when, when crises occur, such as the regular um, cyclones, um, people gather together and they support each other and you know, they get by. But the lockdown was so long and, and, and it needed to be that long, but it was so long, it was 10 weeks that um, everyone used up all of their savings. So, so the people that they normally would have gone to for some support, their neighbors, their extended family, the, the uh, others, um, they also didn't have money. So more people fell into poverty during the lockdown and it was the lower middle, lower middle class. 
And so all of a sudden, the, 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 I mean, the, this continuum of who is middle class is, is primarily based on levels of education from the people mm -hmm. that we engaged with rather than income. But nevertheless, people who, who historically never asked for support from the government or from NGOs, now um, were, hung, were needed support. Mm -hmm. And they weren't on any registers for, for food packages. And so, 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 this, so COVID, the lockdown, um, cities, it's, it's, cre it's showcasing um, a group of people who historically haven't needed um, support who are now really in a precarious situation. Um, and it was the length of the time. Do you have any indication, as you pointed out, this is a part of the world where they see two cyclone cycles a year. They, these are not strangers to um, weather-related disasters. And also, we're going to talk about climate change in a minute. I mean, they've got weather-related disasters and climate change-related disasters. So two different temporalities unfolding here of disaster. But somehow the pandemic is 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 exposing inequalities or 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 vulnerabilities that were not well understood. How can that be? Mahin, do you want to try and answer or do you want me to? Sorry, you do you want to start and I'll then come come in? Um, I'm just going to say a short bit and then I think Mahin can talk much more about it. Um, I think there's so many people that are, you know, just on that cusp of not being able to make ends meet. Um, and something like 35% of the people that we engage with um, don't have enough money to cover their monthly expenses, so they're constantly borrowing. But now it's a much larger group of people, and that's the problem. It's that all of a sudden it's just, it's just, it, it, it's too high of a percentage of the population. I can't give you that percentage, but it's, it's just it's just much more problematic. Um, um, Mahin? Yeah. Okay. So um, one of the biggest learnings of vulnerabilities um, f coming from countries like Bangladesh during the pandemic was the um, was the daily wage workers, how they were affected. And uh, we forget that uh, countries and economies like Bangladesh, they are very much reliant on the informal sector. Majority of the population are actually working as informal workers and they are dependent on a daily wage for livelihoods, for survival. So when when Hannah was saying that it was the lockdown, it was, yes, there was the health dimension, but the, the impact of the lockdown on the social and economic indicators was massive for, for, uh, for, a, for a country like Bangladesh because these people were not being able to earn any income. They were not being able to put food on the table for their families or they couldn't even try to do it. Even if they somehow could make ends meet, there wasn't any possibility because there were no opportunities out there. So one of the first uh, impact would be, I would say, the vulnerabilities coming to the surface is the day laborers. Then the other was what we just spoke about is the migrant workers, you know, how they were impacted, how they were being sent back from overseas to Bangladesh because, you know, there was no work available anymore. Nothing was working, you know, and they were just, uh, they were, a burden on that economy. And this is one of the themes that we talk about under the Voices from the Frontline Initiative. This is an emerging message that these uh, workers, migrant workers, and uh, they need more protection and security in the economies that they're working in. Um, the other effect is also the vulnerabilities of minorities of, of like, for example, I interviewed a transgender activist uh, that, and she works with the transgender population in Bangladesh and how they have been impacted. Uh, mm. you know, like we can just go deeper and deeper. There are so many levels that are individually affected. So, for example, I'll just give you one example of this uh, of uh, referring from my interview is that she uh, she was telling me that when people from this, uh, uh, when transgender people were going uh, to access food relief packages that were given, that were being given out by the government, they were denied because they were told that they are not in the list. Hence, they cannot 
uh, access these food packages. So that is that we don't think about these things. We yes, it's available for everyone. Everyone can access it. But what are the qualifications? What are the criteria? And these things came to the surface. And there were there were many initiatives. There were ration cards being distributed by the government. There were food relief packages. But unfortunately not everyone could access it and that exacerbated the, the inequalities among these populations so my, go ahead hannah it's it's really important to understand that in countries such as bangladesh or nepal um the government the governments have learned how to support people really quickly when a crisis occurs uh, you know a hazard event or the pandemic so these lists um, are lists of, 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 of poor and vulnerable people in you know, cities and in rural areas. So the government, so the local authorities immediately handed out um, you know, staples. So rice, lentils, soap, um, oil, things like that. So people could get by for that first month. Right. So they had enough, not enough um, food staples um, as donations for that first month. It was that second month, that the second six weeks. And then there was Eid, um, which then just really, really hurt people. Um, so I think there are systems in place to support, um, to support people from the government, um, which, which are effective. Um, but then the question is who falls through the cracks, which is what Mahin's talking about, or, or what I think, you know. So I think, um, um, and it's also, I think, really important to understand that um, uh, that residents um, trust their local authorities. That's really important, you know. So, so they listen. Um, people didn't. There wasn't. So anyway, with the cyclone, uh, it was just. Um, there's trust. There's you know. There's elements of um, of people working as a collective and supporting each other. So there are really strong elements of society coming through. Um, in, the, in the times of crisis as well. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to add, uh, sorry, that some of the vulnerabilities are also interlinked. And for example, um, I we, as per some of the stories, again, referring back to them, some of these migrant workers who were actually coming back and they were facing the stigma and they didn't have anything to do, that, that, that resulted in a rise of gender-based violence that resulted in uh, a lot of uh, issues, uh, domestic violence as well. And also uh, uh, the other issues that got exacerbated this, during this period is there was a rise in child marriages as well. And um, there has been studies done uh, to uh, monitor these, uh, for example, a foundation in Bangladesh called Manushir Junna Foundation, they carried out a survey and um, and then it was said that for, uh, 4, 000, more than 4,000 women and 400, 400 children faced uh, domestic violence during this period in 27 of the districts out of 64 districts in Bangladesh. And, uh, and in this survey, 17,000 women and children had been uh, had been uh, surveyed, and uh, one of the uh, in one of the um, things that came across was also early marriages, and this was to ease of financial burden that was uh, prevalent during this period. One of the things about the COVID nineteen experience globally is that uh, we try to get our minds around these numbers and the scale of things, but the the power of these individual narratives is really really uh, worth. I think our attention and Mahin, you've been writing a lot and I want to just, um, uh, let me just read a sentence from a piece you wrote uh, earlier in the summer. And this is about um, Shuli Ishrat who lives in Aftab Nagar, Dhaka. And you write near her home is an informal settlement mainly inhabited by daily wage workers, a hundred families, each comprising multiple family members with a total of 320 residents. Here, the COVID-19 crisis, so this is what you were just alluding to, has led to massive job losses and food insecurity. Many of the women living in the settlements are domestic helpers and have lost their jobs because outsiders are restricted from entering private houses for fear of contagion, says Shuli. Can you tell us more about it, her and, and her experience? I mean, it, it, I think the power of these narratives is, has to be really reckoned with. 
Yes, yes, definitely. So it has been um, quite an eye-opening experience for me to work in this project with my colleagues in at I, I, ICAD, uh, because we've been uh, exploring community self-organized initiatives. So we've seen that across the world in, in communities, in remote communities, grassroots communities, uh, members of these communities are coming together and uh, implementing self-organized initiatives to support the most vulnerable. And uh, it, it's, it's been fascinating to see how small initiatives has been having a ripple effect and has been really impacting um, uh, the, the community as a whole. So this specific story that you just referred to, I interviewed Shuli Ishrat. Um, I actually read about her in the national newspaper uh, in Protomalo, and I reached out to her to understand more about her story and you know why she's doing and how she's doing it. Um, so I wanted to also bring in that personal touch. So she simply just noticed one day um, that, you know, there were people out there. There was an informal settlement right uh, in the neighborhood that she lives in. And people were just sitting in the streets, not doing anything. And she noticed that, observed that for many days. And one day she just went up to them and asked, what is going on? And um, yeah, so they just, they presented their situation to her saying that, look, we're daily wage workers. This is how we work. We're either construction workers or domestic helpers. And we're out of jobs because of COVID-19 and its obvious effects because of the lockdown. So she wanted to do something. She wanted to, you know, start helping them. She initially started by, you know, reaching out to her uh, community through social media, gathering some funds, you know, food relief packages. And this was all privately coordinated uh, by Shuli. And um, so this was the beginning of, you know, how she started to help these people. Then later she came up with this idea of a community kitchen. She uh, realized and discussed with these hundred families, you know, these people living in the uh, in the settlements that, you know, if we all cook together, it will be more cost effective. And I think we can all come together and help each other out. She also wanted to utilize their spare time, you know, instead of having them sit idle and just you know access the food and money they all she wanted her them to be part of and contribute to a, a greater a cause and also themselves for the welfare of themselves and the community they live in so then she made a you know uh, devised this makeshift kitchen in the in the area that she lives in then later she uh, realized that there were a lot of empty plot of lands available in the neighborhood and then she talked again she discussed it with the uh, the informal uh, settlers that why don't we start gardening here growing vegetable so she reached out to the landlords through her network in the neighborhood um, people who own those lands and they wanted to encourage her some were reluctant but she assured them that it would only be during this period um, of coronavirus and uh, that's how it started, you know, the community garden, uh, community kitchen, and all these people came together. You know, obviously there were safety protocols, there were safety measurements in place, the distance, there were hand sanitizer, hand washing facilities, everyone was wearing masks, and they were not eating together, mind you. They were taking the food to their houses and then eating it there. So all of those measures were in place. And she has been able to sort of manage that for a few months. And also, you know, once these, uh, the news, the story was out there in the press, she could access some funds as well. Uh, and now she's thinking about how to um, help these communities such as these to somehow come up with alternative livelihoods during crisis like COVID-19 so that they don't fall into despair again in the future. So what you've just told us, first of all, it's remarkable, and people want to check out more of your writing. They can check out this um, Voices from the Frontline series, which um, is part of the ICCAD website. I encourage people to take a look at that. And the story of Shuli Ishrat is really, I mean, what you're not telling us here, or, or what, you're, what you're telling us is is not what some might expect, which is that some sort of outside aid organization came in and brought in um, truckloads of supplies and and just managed things. Now, maybe that's happening or maybe that's not. And you can tell us um, how Shuli's story fits into the broader story of um, relief in this moment. But what you've just described is what I would call mutual aid at a very local level, but highly organized and effective, as you've described it. Is that representative? 
Is that representative of? Of the of the way that the the response is happening in the country. Yes. I mean, yes. Yeah. Certainly, and uh, uh, the the stories that we have been publishing have been has been from all over the world, but they're so similar. You know, it, it doesn't matter if the community is in Africa or in India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, or even in 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 South America. They have a very very similar narrative of these communities actually organizing themselves and taking initiatives to support the vulnerable, and this mm -hmm. is where we can learn. You know, for the future, for future crisis management, how they're doing this, how they're actually organizing, coming together and actually helping each other out through collaboration. There's also a lot of fostering of uh, relationships with local authorities in, in other instances. There's also a lot of awareness uh, being uh, carried out. And also what these communities are doing is they're utilizing resources that are available to them to cater to the needs of the people. And that's very interesting because resources usually in these communities are very scarce and very limited. So that's a very interesting narrative that we're getting out of these stories. It's a powerful one. And Hannah, I want to get your perspective on this because of course, social scientists are always, I mean, we're looking for stories like this and then trying to think about ways what kind of lessons can be learned and teed up for policymakers, certainly, but also how they might compare to other cases that we haven't been looking as closely at. What's your What's your perspective on what you do with a story like the one Mahin has said, how we can turn that into broader I, lessons learned? I think that um, that solidarity and mutual aid and mutual support are everywhere. Um, it's just a question of, do we want to see it? Um, how to make that link to um, formal government structures, that's the difficulty. A lot of these um, informal mechanisms are led by women. And it's, it's that link with the people who have money and power that doesn't happen because um, governments don't want it to happen. Um, so after the earthquake in Nepal, for example, um, there was tremendous acts of Nepali people helping Nepali people. And that happened in the hours and days after the earthquake before international aid came. But that's not written about, um, it's not seen because it might not necessarily be interesting for some to see it, um, but it's most certainly there. Um, it's women's groups, it's, um, it's self-help groups. Um, they're there, they're, they're, they're all over the world. Um, yeah. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Mahin Khan and Hannah Rushik about Bangladesh, but we're talking about issues that go well beyond um, the COVID-19 pandemic in Bangladesh. And I'm glad you brought in this, um, the Nepal case, and you, you've alluded to your work in Nepal. Um, Hannah, before we were on, you mentioned you've got a book um, that does look at the earthquake. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Because that's, this is a regional discussion as well today that we're having. Um, I was conducting my PhD research in Nepal of, around community resilience um, and those acts of, um, you know, how do cities survive under such difficult circumstances? And I was actually there during the earthquake. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I left about, about five days after the earthquake. Um, and I needed to do something. Um, and so we wrote, we co-edited a book called um, The Evolving narratives of hazard and risk and uh, we published it in 2018 um, and what i'm really proud of with the book is that most of the authors are nepalis and so we tried to give space for for nepali academics and practitioners to give their point of view about the earthquake rather than having um, foreigners write about nepal's earthquake on behalf of nepal um, and so, of course, they write in a very different way than, than um, 
than others would have written. But the book was written in, the earthquake was in 2015 and we wrote the book in 2016, beginning of 2017. So it's really quite raw in some places, but, um, but it's, a, it's an important contribution of having, um, of decolonizing knowledge and trying to have um, people from the country represent their country in academic discourse and in conversations such as this one. It seems like that, thank you for describing that and I hope people will, will check out that book. Maheen, it seems that there's a similar set of tasks at the core of the Voices from the Frontline series as well, which is to elevate the stories of people that we might call experts if they were from the United States or Australia or, or the UK, but in another context, we call them community, or as Hannah says, if we call them anything, if we even observe them at all. Could you share with us, maybe um, we have a few minutes left, another story that we should be attentive to, like the one you were, you were just describing of the community kitchens, great story. Yeah, sure. Um, there are so many, it's difficult to choose. Um, and more, a lot of them are actually just very, very similar. But I, I will share one from Bangladesh as well. Um, and this was, a, a it's on community savings group. So one of the things that um, we are trying to highlight, um, and I would also personally like to highlight, is the role of women's leadership uh, in these community initiatives as well as youth initiatives. And one of the stories that had was published a few weeks back was uh, from the southwest of Bangladesh, um, uh, and it was based on women's saving groups. And... Um, so there were this group of women who actually initiated and founded this savings group for uh, for women as well as the wider community. And what happened is during the lockdown, because of the lockdown measures, uh, they couldn't meet and they couldn't um, uh, take out loans because they were having issues, obviously, uh, related to income and livelihoods. So first few months, they couldn't uh, um, function as per usual. But then later, once the, they had the grasp of the COVID situation and the lockdown, it was fantastic to see how they reorganized. They reorganized to meet again, keeping, uh, uh, ensuring that they have the safety protocols in place, but at the same time, catering to, to the needs of the community when it comes to financial uh, requirements to giving out loans and also to uh, start the uh, saving cycle once again. So that was really fascinating to understand how these women also, they took advantage of these groups to create awareness of the of the crisis, to create uh, awareness on the, uh, the safety protocols, as well as other uh, issues like, again, child marriage, uh, domestic violence that were, that was, that were also in the rise uh, during that period. So that was also a story that was tremendously interesting to see how people are also reorganizing themselves. When they get a shock and there's a crisis, they don't know what to do, they move away, that impacts them, they, that impacts their daily lives. But then they come back together and women's leadership has been monumental in some of these initiatives. Um, one of the things that I, uh, I want to highlight and has been a result of the VFL series is that we need to learn from these community-based initiatives. We need to learn from them. And we uh, we have we usually have women under vulnerability groups. We refer to women as vulnerable. We need to change that narrative because that takes away a lot of, that limits their participation when it comes to knowledge production and decision-making by just, you know, you know uh, categorizing them as vulnerable. So we need to change that narrative and that has been, uh, a, there's an, a very interesting article which I can share later, uh, uh, co-authored by Suranjana Gupta and Sheila Patel on how we need to change the narratives of, of a new normal. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been one of the biggest learnings uh, during COVID is these initiatives. A profound statement to uh, rewrite the narrative about women as vulnerable. Hannah, how do you, I mean, what are the first steps towards doing that? I think I've got you. I think you're muted, Hannah. I said that's a really hard question right at the end. I know. Um, oh, God. 
you know, what do I say? The patriarchy, you know, governance structures, um, uh, we have to fight. We have to have hope and we have to fight. Um, there's, n there's, um, I don't know what else to say right now. I mean, that's another, that's another program. <laughs> yeah, it's not fair to give you 30 seconds to deconstruct yeah. patriarchy within disaster yeah, like, production. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think we've had some clues even in our discussion today about what we're looking for in our research, who gets to say, who gets to write, and scale. And I guess that way we're almost up on time, but that also strikes me, you know, um, so many of the sort of global efforts at disaster risk reduction are geared at, at long-term um, adaptation to climate change. And I know that work has been robust in Bangladesh. It, yeah, but it's, it's that fundamental disconnect between the scales right. and, and the different actors. Um, and community-based work takes a tremendous amount of time. And, and to a large extent, it's invisible. Um, it creates, it's like the, the fabric of society, you know, um, women and, and their groups um, and what they do helps societies to continue to function. It's off their bodies. It's their families. It's their, you know, it's their neighborhoods. It's larger. The problems happen that when people, the people who control the money, who set up the policies are not really interested to hear the voices of women. They're interested to have the women do the work so that they can then build on that to do something else. Um, so there's a fundamental disconnect. Um, yeah. Mahina, I'm going Fighting, fighting, hope, activism. Yeah, well taken. Thank you for those. And, and Mahina, I'm just going to give you the, the last word, um, not to predict what we should see in Bangladesh necessarily in the coming months, but what might be if we were looking for some clue to hope to see some recovery there? What are you looking for? What are, what's terms, possible in this moment in Bangladesh as people do recover from the pandemic? Well, I think um, we the the Bangladesh is understanding its uh, uh, how to improve on the public health uh, sphere. I think um, the testing debacle, the the uh, you know the sort of differences that that has happened in the past few months that has given rise to a lot of uh, re very much required attention to this nature. You know how the public health system needs to be more responsive uh, as a whole uh, to to crisis like COVID nineteen. But I I feel it's positive because there's like I said I mean the country has a younger population. And um, we are seeing a lot of initiatives, both public and private. And one of the things that has come out from our research project that I was actually working with uh, Hannah uh, on the food security project is that, you know, that people were there to help other people. There was there were rapid responses, whether it's from the government or from the private sector. People didn't go hungry. There was something or the other happening and there was a lot of social capital to fall back on you know mm -hmm. there were people out there whether be it neighbors or local shopkeepers or just friends and family coming to the aid of other people so that social capital that solidarity was very very strongly is very very strongly embedded uh, in in countries like bangladesh so i am quite hopeful uh, I, I think that uh, we need to learn from this. And I just wanted to answer that question. How do we do that? How do we change the narrative? By writing more stories, by giving voice to people, and by uh, highlighting and bringing these stories on the surface. That's how it gets the due attention it needs. And that's how we try, we start changing the narrative in the future. Whether it's women-led initiatives or community-based initiatives, that's how we um, initiate the conversation. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls. You can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. I need to release my guests because it is in the middle of the night where they are and they need to rest and get up and get back to this work. Tomorrow, Mahin Khan and Hannah Rushek, I've learned so much in this hour from you. Thank you so much for your time and the research you're doing. And I think we're gonna to need to check back in with you a little bit later in the year and, and hear how it's going. Um, can you both, um, I think you have uh, uh, work that you want to make sure we keep attuned to, right, Mahin? So this is the 
tell us again where we find your writing. So it's uh, Voices from the Frontline. It's uh, on the ICAD website. I can share the link. Um, and uh, yes, we, the, the more stories will be published for the next uh, many months, you know, till April. So. Right. And Hannah, your research group, I'm presuming, will have reports and studies ongoing yeah. out of this work as well. So yes, we'll definitely. keep up with your and the center that you're in. Tell us one more time at Durham. So I work for the um, Institute of Hazard, Risk and Resilience at Durham University. And my website will also have um, all of the publications. Um, and I will always try to make them accessible uh, to anyone who would like to read them. That's great. Well, thank you both very much again. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the experience of Latinos in the United States and COVID-19. So stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock. Thank you. Thank you.